Welcome to A Pastor and a Philosopher Walk into a Bar. The podcast where we mix a sometimes weird but always delicious cocktail of theology, philosophy, and spirituality. Well, hello and welcome, friends, to A Pastor and a Philosopher Walk into a Bar. We are going to talk about a heavy one today. Yeah. Yeah. Today we're talking about afterlife, what happens when we die. And I got to tell you, I want to let you know, this is the pastoral thing. This is heavy business and it's cutting straight to the heart of most religious people's deeply held beliefs. And Kyle in particular, but we're going to consider some things that um, might challenge you quite a bit. And so we're going to suggest some difficult things to think about. We're going to try to do it as respectfully, reverently, gently as we can, but it might be too much for you. If, if questioning the afterlife if the idea that the afterlife might not exist, if that rocks your boat way too much, even just me saying that makes your skin crawl and it makes you all sorts of uncomfortable, please push pause and just move on to the next episode. Don't listen to this because it's not going to be helpful for your journey. But we're going to be thinking about the afterlife from both a philosophical and religious perspective. But we're really going to be hammering in and Kyle's going to do it. He's going to take us on a journey through that philosophical perspective of afterlife. Is there an afterlife? What happens when we die? And I'm excited to dive in and be challenged. I Just reading this outline, I was challenged, Kyle. So <laughs> Yeah, no, it challenges me too, frankly. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's something I think about every time I have a friend or a loved one pass away or every time I teach it in class, right? Yeah. And death is always a unit that we cover in my intro classes. So something I've thought about for a long time and something that still keeps me awake at night, frankly. So. Yeah, yeah. And it's something that's been interesting on this journey of this podcast that I've noticed about you is I've known you, our relationship has been, you know, f- well, friends, but also pastor and you're, you're, you're part of my church the church I lead. And I've noticed over the course of this podcast and our conversations that you, if you have to pick between thinking as a philosopher or thinking as a follower of Christ, as a Christian, Hmm. you usually choose thinking like a philosopher. (laughs) And that's very interesting. And that's going to come up in this episode a bit. Can you, can you tell us about that just a little bit? I I try to, I try to keep those consistent. That's that's one of my my main pursuits really is to figure out how those can go together. So that's interesting to hear you say, uh, well, maybe revisit that at the end of this and we'll see how you think I did. All right. All right. (laughs) Keeping those together. So let's do what we normally do around here, which is taste a delicious beverage and talk about it for a little bit. Awesome. For so many of you, this is what you look forward to. For others, this is where you hit skip. <laughs> Go ahead. I Today really we have you would stop encouraging people to skip parts of our podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just be honest. It's going to happen. Um, Yep. So today our friends at Story Hill BKC uh, provided us with something that they've really been enjoying. It's a it's a more entry-level bourbon. And my friend Joe from Story Hill BKC told me that they did a taste test with their staff of their more lower, more entry level whiskeys, whether it's Jim Beam or Evan Williams, or, you know, you can go down, down the list. And this is the one that consistently won. And it's Ezra Brooks. Many of us know Ezra Brooks. It's a good, you can get a 175 for 25 bucks. It's a great buy. That's 90 proof. This is the Ezra Brooks 99 proof. So it's a higher cut and it's something a little bit special and you can get it at Story Hill BKC right now for 27 bucks. Nice. Which is a good buy. So let's see what we think here, gentlemen. All right. Mm. Got some bright flavors. Mm. A little bit of caramel in there. Oh man, for a 99, I would not mm-hmm. expect it to be that smooth. Yeah, I can see why they went this direction because it's really gentle at first. But then it doesn't disappoint for a high-proof bourbon either. It's yeah. got full flavor. 
They're really nice. It is very sweet. It tastes a little young, but these these are mostly things I like. There's some fruitiness on the palate, I think. Mm. Can't place the fruit, but it's there. Yeah, to me, it doesn't taste immature. I think the higher cut brings in more flavors and more of the the fuller spectrum because it's it tastes to me like a not like a twenty seven dollar bottle of bourbon. It tastes yeah. you know thirty five ish mm-hmm. dollar level where yeah. um, you bring in some complexity. You bring in some. There's not one strong flavor for me. Usually, I'm just popping on the the library books or the leather mm-hmm. or the you know I don't get anything really strong and straightforward here. It's caramely. I taste some oak. It's got a little vanilla, got a little yeah. spice, but it's it's well rounded. Yep, I get the vanilla too. For it, it's almost two distinct flavors. It starts with vanilla for me, and then it gets hotter, and that's the one I can't place yet. I, yeah. I don't know how to describe that. For me, that. it's creme brulee that just kind of lingers mm. yeah. for yeah, a long yeah, time, yeah. but almost no nose whatsoever. So everything just hits you when you drink it. Yep. I mean, I do get. It smells like alcohol. It smells like <laughs> alcohol, but also a little bit of honey, a little bit of that dusty aspect that I was, I don't mm-hmm. taste it, but I smell it a little bit. But yeah, you're right. Mm-hmm. Everything happens in the mouth in this one. Yeah. yeah. But for $27, that's a, It's a that's great buy. Yeah. I mean, to have that in your liquor cabinet, be able to bring out, I would have a cigar with this and enjoy myself very much. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I might have a new new bottle or the bottom shelf. Yeah. There you go. Yeah, Love absolutely. It. 100%. So if you're in Milwaukee, stop by Story Hill BKC, get Ezra Brooks 99. It's a great buy. See other things that they have. And if you're not in Milwaukee... You can find Ezra Brooks 99 at most liquor stores, I think, right now. Yeah. And support local. Absolutely. And since you mentioned bottom shelf, we have a Patreon that you should also support, which has several tiers that you can choose from. Many oh, yeah. Bottom perks. shelf isn't the only one. Bottom shelf's not the only one, but you can get in on that for, what is it, $3 a month? I yeah. Think. Speaking uh, of Patreon, can we uh, give a shout out to one of our top shelf supporters? Absolutely. Our top shelf supporters, we're so grateful for them. And we just had a great time at a tasting um, at Story Hill BKC with them. But Kelsey Bren, just want to say thank you for supporting the show, for being part of what we do here. We couldn't do this without you. Cheers yeah. to Kelsey. Cheers to Kelsey. Cheers to Kelsey. So, Kyle, the afterlife. Afterlife. What happens, what happens when we die? Let's let's dive in. Yeah. This could be a super short episode if we wanted it to be. We'd just say, I don't know. <laughs> the <laughs> end. <laughs> Cue the music. <laughs> Yeah, but neither do you, and then there's more to say, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, so let me let me tell you a. I'm going to try to make it brief. A philosophical story about death. <laughs> All right, I'm going to tell this in two parts. So part one starts in ancient Athens. So you have Socrates, who I know I've mentioned before on the podcast. You're going to get tired of hearing about him eventually. Socrates uh, goes out into the city of Athens, and he does a couple of things simultaneously that piss everybody off. Uh, one thing he does is that he questions the religion of the city. This is something you're not supposed to do. He wasn't the first to do that. There were some philosophers ahead of him that did similar things, but he was very public about it and had a method for it that uh, he just wouldn't relent and, and really made people mad, questioning the religion of the city. And part of the religion of the city was a, a certain view of the afterlife, and he questioned that view. He would go and talk to the poets and he would ask them, you know, how do you know the gods are like this? And how do you know this is what it's going to be like? And turned out they didn't. They couldn't give a good justification for that. Uh, but interestingly, you might think that he would then have rejected an afterlife or that we could have any knowledge of such a thing. But he didn't. He's very famous for making some arguments for the existence of an afterlife. He thinks that we are immortal, that we have souls, which maybe we can talk about in another episode, uh, and that those things are immortal. They don't 
pass away when we die. They continue forever. And that that's what we fundamentally are. So our thoughts and, you know, how we understand ourselves and all the things we cared about and believed, that's all going to continue when the body dies and decays. And he gave some reasons for that. But interestingly, they weren't religious reasons. Hmm. They weren't because Homer said so, Hmm. which is what everybody kind of expected. They were philosophical reasons, which means they appealed to premises that any reasonable person should be able to understand and get behind and see the truthfulness of. Uh, So he, he was simultaneously questioning religion, but affirming an afterlife, except he was doing it for philosophical reasons. And what this does is take this traditionally religious discussion, what happens when we die, and puts it squarely in the realm of reason. And we're now demanding justification for what the religions have taught us. Mm-hmm. And, if, and if we can't get it, right, or if, or if the justification we get isn't satisfying, or if it just reduces to so-and-so said so, then it's within our rational rights to reject such reasons uh, and, and see if we can do better by going out into the world and exploring and making better arguments. So that's one thing he does. He also uh, starts with what we can establish just with our reason. So one of, the, one of the reasons he ends up with his view that there is an afterlife is because he thinks knowledge is possible. I try not to get too complicated here. The goal of philosophy is knowledge. We want knowledge. He, he thinks we can have knowledge, that it, there, is, there is such a thing as knowing things, right? We can know that two plus two equals four, for example, and we can be really damn sure about it. But he thinks, and... This, this would take us too far on a tangent to explain fully, but he thinks that we don't know things like that with our bodies. You can't know that two plus two equals four with your body. Hmm. Uh, in fact, your body can only get in the way of that kind of knowledge uh, because our senses, they tell us things about the world that are sometimes wrong, right? And we can discover that they're wrong and uh, we can be fooled and we can reason poorly and stuff like that. So he really thinks, and he starts this long tradition of people thinking that the body just kind of gets in the way where philosophy is concerned. What we really want is pure reason, which is an activity of the mind. And so Plato is one of the first dualists, somebody who thinks that there's a material world and there's a mental world, and the mental world is eternal and unchanging. That's what that's where we properly live, and the material world is changing and fleeting and temporal, and that's all going to go away, and it's going to dissolve. And if we were just that, then we would go away and we would dissolve, and that's it. But he doesn't think we're just that. We're more than that. We're a soul. We have reasoning powers. Uh, and he believes that for Reasons, again, that he didn't get from religion. It's all philosophical for him. So that's story number one. And it didn't end with Plato. That continued for thousands of years of philosophical history, and there are still people today who uh, take that view. They would call themselves Platonists, actually. Story number two. So sometime around the modern period, uh, or what philosophers call the modern period, begins about with Descartes in the 17th century, continues through Kant, in the 19th century, uh, you have a bunch of philosophers questioning a lot of things. They're questioning pretty much everything that came before. They're trying to put knowledge on a firmer footing than what they thought it was on before. They're questioning religion in a big way. This is where the Enlightenment happens. And, you know, the, the credo of the Enlightenment taken from Kant, which says, think for yourself. <laughs> this is where that all gets birthed. And so you have modernists, people like uh, Descartes, but more, more prominently, people like uh, Locke or uh, Berkeley or David Hume or various others, uh, and Kant himself as well, 
And then you have another tradition that emerges around this time and continues through the 20th century, and that is existentialism, kind of based in this modernist period. And these people do a couple things. They question religion, too, very much in line with what Plato was Big doing. Surprise. Yeah. Uh, they don't question it in quite the same way. Many of them, especially the existentialists, are just dismissive. They just they don't even think that's a question worth conversation worth having anymore, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. They just kind of hand wavy. Well, that's obviously false. So let's start <laughs> on the presumption that that's false. Um, and so they they're doing what Plato is doing there, but when it comes to the question of an afterlife, they reject it. Mm-hmm. Uh, not without exception, there are debates, of course, but most of them reject it. So certainly, most of the existentialists, and again for philosophical reasons. And that tradition is alive and well today as well. In fact, probably most philosophers today would take more from those traditions, the modernist and existentialist traditions, than they would from the ancient Platonic traditions, mm-hmm. which implies that most philosophers today would probably reject an afterlife, sure. which is, I think, true. Um, so let's call these two traditions that I just kind of really quickly went through, the optimists and the pessimists, where where the afterlife is concerned. So you have the, the Platonists or the people that followed Plato and other ancients. Let's call them optimists. They don't know for sure, and Plato's Socrates really clearly doesn't know for sure, but they at least think there is some philosophical reason to think that that when we die and our bodies decay, that's not the end. There's more. They have historically kind of lost the argument in terms of numbers, but they're still around. And then there's the pessimists, the people that follow some of the modernists, uh, actually some ancients too, including Aristotle, um, but mostly the existentialists and a few modernists who think that we we don't have an afterlife. And part of the reason they think this is because they tend to be materialists or physicalists, which means they think the world is made up of atoms and uh, things that obey laws of nature, and we're part of that. And so one of the things we know about the laws of nature is entropy, and things die and decay, and that's that. Uh, so if we're part of that whole story, then you know we're not an exception. So let's call those people the pessimists. Now, one thing that both of these sides are agreed about, interestingly, is that this is a question religion shouldn't decide. Okay. <laughs> uh, that, that it should be plucked out of the purview of religious belief. Whether that be monotheistic or polytheistic or whatever, this is a question best left to the philosophers. And there are many reasons religion shouldn't decide. I'm just going to list some of them for you here. Uh, basically, religion can't be trusted to answer a question like this. And the reason is, some reasons are, that one, religions have a vested interest in the answer, right? They want followers, and telling people that this is the end is not a good way to get followers. But telling people that, hey, we actually have some inside knowledge, and this is not the end, and there's a whole lot more happening, and we can even actually tell you about it, and it's going to be really good if you X, Y, Z. That's a really good way to get followers. So kind of one of those first rules of critical thinking. If you're dealing with someone who has a vested interest in the outcome of your dialogue, you should be a little suspicious Mm -hmm. of that person. So Mm -hmm. that's one reason philosophers have been suspicious of religions. Their existence and their payroll kind of depends on people (laughs) having a certain view of this, right? So that's one reason. Another reason to be suspicious is that religions and religious thinkers have a tendency to maybe not follow the argument where it leads, they have a tendency to follow the argument right up to the point where it starts to get uncomfortable <laughs> and then to kind of batten down the hatches and say, uh, and here's a revelation, right? Or here's authority or whatever. Often if the argument is going to lead outside your tradition, religious people are not willing to follow it. So that's another reason to be suspicious. Uh, some philosophers like Hume, famous skeptic in the modern period, argued that 
the evidence we get from religion about afterlife and what it's like actually cancels itself out because the Christians say one thing and the Muslims say another thing and the Jews say another thing and those are just the monotheisms and then we have the Hindus that say a different thing and the Buddhists that say a different thing and the Sikhs and the Jainists and all of it and they're contradictory. They can't all be right, you know, and they're all appealing to different kinds of authorities and, you know, specific revelations that they claim happened in their histories. And if the Christians are right, then the Muslims are just mistaken and vice versa. Mm-hmm. And if the Buddhists are right, then all the monotheisms are mistaken. And, and so Hume says, you know, as kind of a neutral observer, who are we supposed to believe here? It seems like what the Buddhists tell me has just as much behind it as what the Christians tell me. I, have, I wasn't there to observe any of these events. And so uh, if I'm going to trust one over the other, I need to have a good reason. And I don't. So maybe they just cancel each other out. So that's another reason to be suspicious. So my, a question here would be, do philosophers think that religion should decide anything? <laughs> That's a good question. <laughs> uh, yeah, so obviously there's not broad agreement about that, or I shouldn't say unanimous agreement about that. There are religious philosophers. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're minority, but they're out there. I think I'm one of them. <laughs> mm-hmm. Things that are strictly within the purview of religion would include doctrine, you know, uh, defining yourself and the tenets of your faith and what your practice should look like. Mm-hmm. And all the philosophers I know don't have any interest in getting involved in those kinds of discussions. Yeah. But when religions pronounce on things that are of universal human interest, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. like what's the world like fundamentally? Mm-hmm. You know, where did it come from? How old is it? Uh, can we know much about its nature? Uh, what happens when humans die? How should humans behave towards one another? Ethics. Uh, then philosophers are. They, their hackles go up a little bit. Now, uh-huh. now it's not to say, you know, theologians or whoever shouldn't participate in those conversations. I think most of the philosophers I know would welcome that, but they would welcome it kind of on the terms of philosophical argumentation, mm-hmm. right? You can't just bring in your tradition and say, QED, here it is. <laughs> because the Bible said. Yeah, yeah, yeah you, need to, you need to be able to back that up. Sure, that's fair. Yeah. Uh, So just a couple more reasons that uh, maybe we should be a little bit suspicious of religious claims about these things. Um, Religions, and again, this is not universal, there are clear exceptions to this, but they tend to hold on to antiquated notions of human nature, despite new evidence to the contrary. Mm -hmm. So we could name several times in church history or the history of various religions where this sort of thing has happened. Uh, Darwin would be a Mm -hmm. a very big one, probably Mm -hmm. the big one, right? Um, And so... Makes you wonder why they would do that. Mm-hmm. It ma- makes you wonder if maybe they really are open to learning the truth about this. If they mm-hmm. were, you'd think they would incorporate all new evidence as mm-hmm. it came, rather than trying to kind of hold on to a tradition that might be in conflict with it. And let me just say for right there, because people hear this and they think we're saying things that maybe we're not. You're not inherently saying you're dumb or it's a terrible thing to not believe in evolution and to believe in you know, creative design and six day creation, the whole deal. I mean, you don't agree with that, but I think you would say, and other philosophers would say, as long as you believe in that and say, the reason that I believe that is because I, I give the Bible authority yeah. over and above science, right? Like mm-hmm. that's, yeah. that's okay. You would say, well, it's not okay. It's intellectual suicide. It's a mistake, but it's honest. It's honest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and that happens, you know, I've, um, I've read and heard of, 
young earth creationists, for example, who, mm-hmm. who will argue in that way. So some of whom are convinced by scientific arguments that the earth appears to be mm-hmm. old, or mm-hmm. the, you know, the universe appears to be in the way that science describes it. But the my reading of the Bible says otherwise, and I'm going to privilege that because that's my authority. Yeah. You do occasionally run across like really honest um, justifications like that, but it's, it's not the norm. I think that's the exception. To, yeah. to the rule. Yeah. <laughs> the rule tends to be no 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 the the tradition is obviously true yeah. and the you know the scientific consensus is either um some kind of conspiracy or the the product of sin or something mm-hmm. we talked about all that in our yeah. evolution episode. The point I'm trying to make now though is just that there you know religions have a track record of having a particular sometimes niche view of what a human being is and not wanting to let go of it. Yeah. Even when, you know, the consensus of experts changes. And then lastly, (laughs) I'll make this my last reason to be suspicious. I feel like, thank you. uh, Yeah. Word vomiting here. Um, So religions, religious thinkers tend to be unable to give an ultimately non-psychological reason to believe in an afterlife that would be compelling to a neutral observer. A neutral observer being somebody who wasn't already committed to a particular religious view. And what I mean by non-psychological is there are clear psychological reasons to believe that heaven is real and that I'm going to go there when I die. It makes me happy, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. It alleviates the despair that I would feel if I thought that weren't true. It uh, helps me deal with the death of loved ones, mm-hmm. like real practical, you know, psychological Uh, benefit to believing these things. And it's not that, I'm not even saying that psychological reasons aren't good reasons. I think they are good reasons. Um, But often, usually, maybe almost always, religions do not present their reasons for belief in an afterlife in purely psychological terms. Uh, They don't limit themselves to that, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, there have been some philosophers like William James who suggest that, look, it's perfectly acceptable to choose to believe in an afterlife for psychological reasons. But there are some caveats. One caveat is that the independent evidence has to be neutral on the question. So uh, it's not like, for example, choosing to believe in creationism because the evidence is not neutral, Mm -hmm. right, in in that case. So that's why it's an intellectual mistake. It's a flaw of reasoning to choose to believe in creationism over evolution because the evidence points in one direction rather than another. We love you, creationists. I'm a creationist. Yeah, whatever. Listen to our previous episode if you want to know what he means by that. He's not really. Um, But if, let's say something like the afterlife, we don't have, I'm going to make this claim and we can hash it out if you want. We don't have compelling evidence one way or another, right? You watch these movies like, what would happen if we did? Like, you know, some science, I watched one, I can't remember the name of it. Some scientist figures out a way to like scan the brains of dead people and like, uh, come up with images of what they're experiencing just after their death. And That's so a thing? No, it's a movie. Okay, okay, <laughs> but, okay. but it's, it's, it makes for an interesting movie because it's like, okay, well, if humans suddenly possessed evidence that neutral observers would recognize as compelling, mm-hmm. that there is an afterlife, how would that change how we live? And in this movie, a lot of people start to commit suicide <laughs> because they're done with this and they want something different. And now they have evidence that it's there. Mm-hmm. But people don't behave that way because we don't have compelling evidence one way or another. This is something that Socrates used to argue that we shouldn't be afraid of death 
because we simply don't know. And why would you be afraid of something you don't know about? To be afraid implies you know it's negative when you mm-hmm. don't. Uh, nobody comes back to tell us. We could talk about near-death experiences if you want, but they're, they're not the sort of thing that convince a lot of people. And so James would say, if that's your situation, the evidence doesn't point conclusively in one direction or another, and that does seem to be the case with afterlife, then why not use psychological reasons to choose? Why not say, well, okay, uh, I'm going to choose to think that there is something else, that maybe I will get to see my loved ones again, because that has all these identifiable, measurable psychological benefits. And James would say, that's perfectly good reason. There's nothing irrational about that at all. And I actually think he's right about that. So I don't want to denigrate psychological reasons. The point I'm making is that the religions don't present themselves typically as giving you merely psychological reasons. They present themselves as giving you, you know, this is the truth. Mm -hmm. And we can demonstrate it from our tradition. Yeah. No, I mean, in thinking about this episode and this conversation, it made me realize that if it wasn't for my commitment to the scriptures and trust in Christ in the person of Jesus Christ, uh, I I would probably have no reason to believe in an afterlife, and I probably wouldn't. And unless I knew a person who had an after post death experience mm-hmm. and came back, you know, all that stuff, that'd be that'd be pretty fun. But that'd probably be the only way I believe in an afterlife. I don't know why why you would. Yeah, yeah. and I think most religious people are in the same boat. That tends to... now I can I can imagine. Uh, I can try to get myself in the headspace of an agnostic or something or an atheist. I mean, it's actually not hard to do. (laughs) I Mm -hmm. feel like I think that way anyway, in in many ways. And I can imagine wondering if like some future super intelligence would be able to figure out, you know, how to, how to map certain aspects of space time so that they could recreate it and have some kind of de facto resurrection or something like that. Just because, you know, we have no idea what is going to happen scientifically, technologically in the next, let's say our species survives in the next million years. I mean, imagine the difference between where we are now and where our species was even 200 years ago, much less a hundred thousand years ago. We we simply cannot extrapolate what we might be a hundred thousand or a million or a billion years from now, which Mm -hmm. we could Mm -hmm. do Mm -hmm. if we don't destroy each other. So, so when I'm in that frame of mind, I can think, ah, who knows? Maybe something like that could be true, but it would be due to some kind of intelligence I couldn't fathom. Mm-hmm. But then a, a religious person could say, well, what's the difference, really? I mean, we're still, we're still hoping for an intelligence that we can't fathom to work something out in a way that we can't imagine. Isn't that what religious confidence in an afterlife is anyway? Yeah. I'm honestly barely with you on that one. I barely understand what you're saying, but did want to add in there, like we talk about the psychological benefits that many religious, you know, philosophers would say religious people hold to. Mm -hmm. That's the reason why they believe in the afterlife. And a great friend of mine, I have the story that of the opposite of that, where a great friend of mine who believed in the afterlife, believed in resurrection, all that stuff for his whole life, Mm -hmm. then lost his dad. Yeah. And that's a moment when I would think a person would cling to their belief in the afterlife more than anything. And that yeah. where you think, where you believe in it more solidly than ever, because you hope to see that person again And this person, this friend of mine did the opposite. Actually, he hmm. went to this place where he said, I, I think all the stuff that we believe about the afterlife and seeing my dad again, I, I don't think it's real. And he dropped it. Like he's, I don't know if you call it a faith crisis or, uh, you know, deconstruction or just flat out just, is done with it. But yeah. I think he, he was confronted by the closest person to him dying. And really when that actually happened, it disrupted him so much. He just saw 
the what you're talking about, really, which is just, we don't know. Mm-hmm. We believe it. We like to think that. And it actually had the opposite effect. He's like, I can't do this anymore. I don't think I'm yeah. ever going to see my dad again. Yeah, that's really sad. It's but, rough. But I get it. I actually had somewhat the opposite experience. I remember I was in the room and my grandfather passed. This is on my mom's side. And that would have been oh, while I was in grad school, first year or two I was in grad school. And I was like, everybody kind of looked to me to like when it happened to like pray and do the religious mm-hmm. thing, you mm-hmm. know, cause that might sound weird to you now, but at the time I was sort of the, <laughs> looked at as maybe the most, long enough. The I know, most yeah. religious person in, in at least that group. And yeah, I found myself talking about resurrection and having a kind of r- renewed confidence in it, I suppose. But the more I've thought about it since I, I still certainly have a hopefulness for that, but mm-hmm. I, I'm not as intellectually committed as I once was. And that, uh, yeah, it makes me sad. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that, yeah, that maybe it's worth pausing. This is a desperately sad thing we're, we're yeah. considering here, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. I mean, Paul said, literally, if if we're not resurrected, there's what's the point yeah. of, of the whole thing? And I totally get that. Mm-hmm. I feel that in my bones. Like, I think that's, I think he was right. I don't, actually. Really? No. Oh, let's talk about that. Why not? Friends, before we continue, we want to thank Storyhill BKC for their support. Storyhill BKC is a full menu restaurant and their food is seriously some of the best in Milwaukee. On top of that, Storyhill BKC is a full service liquor store featuring growlers of tap available to go, spirits, especially whiskeys and bourbons, thoughtfully curated regional craft beers, and 375 selections of wine. Visit storyhillbkc.com for menu and more info. If you're in Milwaukee, You'll thank yourself for visiting Storyhill BKC, and if you're not, remember to support local. One more time, that's StoryhillBKC.com. I mean, Paul said literally, if if we're not resurrected, there's what's the point? Yeah, of, of the whole thing. I think he was right. I don't actually. Really? No. Oh, let's talk about that. Why not? Because the way of Jesus, even if there is no afterlife, even if there is no resurrection, even if the whole thing is just a hoax. Yeah. I haven't encountered a better way of living than following Christ and the living in the way of Jesus and the way of agape love and hmm. preferring others over yourself and the whole deal. You can run the whole gamut. And I would still say, if you tell me I'm on my deathbed, it was all, all a lie. I'd yeah. be bummed out and I'd want to think my way through it, you know, live long enough to do that. But then I think I would say, I still think it's the best way to live. And I'm hmm. glad I did it. Yeah. So let me just say, you're going on the record here, disagreeing with the Apostle Paul. Straight, uh, I don't know if Paul would disagree with that. <laughs> Paul was pa- Paul was making an argument mm-hmm. for and about the resurrection, and I think it was a really good argument in First Corinthians fifteen. So I don't think I really don't think the Apostle Paul would disagree with me that like, hey, Paul, if this all was make believe, mm-hmm. do you still think it's the best way to live? I'll bet he would say yeah. Interesting. So yeah, now I'm not remembering specifically the context there, but. Uh, maybe he would agree that it's the best way to live. It, it gives us a really interesting ethic, although that hadn't quite been worked out by his time. Uh, Jesus' teachings, in other words, are worth following, yeah. right? Let's say he's a great thinker or philosopher or rabbi or something. Maybe he's one of the greatest ones, and, and maybe Paul wouldn't disagree with that. But he seems pretty strong that if if there's not this thing that we believe happened to Jesus that mm-hmm. will also happen to us, mm-hmm. he was dead and then God raised him. He was mm-hmm. alive again and he was the same person. 
and he had an eternal life ahead of him. Paul seems to think that if that's not the case, if that's not concretely true, then Christians are wasting their time. Yeah, no, I think, haven't you ever been in, you know, tried to prove a point and mm. gone real hard? Exaggerated a little? Exaggerated a little yeah. bit. Yeah, you think that's what was happening there? Perhaps. A little hyperbole? I think Paul was a, Paul was a great debater, that's great, you know, he made great arguments. He's very, yeah. very eloquent speaker. This is right funny to me. In the face of persecution, though, I mean, he's talking about this is the whole hope in the future, and this is the, like, your putting your eyes on that prize. And it seems like that's his whole framework is that this is only worth it if that's true. Uh, isn't that, isn't that one of his themes that he continues to return to? Um, yes, but I think we don't understand the the context and the reality of the early church and the, mm-hmm. like how unclear so many of the things that we take in the churches as just givens and like very known, very established orthodoxy, dogma, all that stuff. When Paul was writing this to the church in Corinth, he was writing to a bunch of people who didn't, not all of them believed in the resurrection and argued against it. And so, he's trying to make as compelling of a case for the resurrection of Christ as an apostle, as one who's met Jesus on the road, you know, and um, he's he's trying to make this argument to a group of people who isn't, he's not preaching to the choir here. This is a real life debate. And so that's how I take 1 Corinthians 15, is him just being like, you guys have no idea how essential the doctrine of the resurrection is for followers of Christ. And he's, yeah. he's kind of doubling down on it almost. Like, if, it's, if it's not real, walk away from this. It's not worth it. <laughs> yeah. But I really don't think he would say that about Jesus. Yeah, well, I see, the, I see the I'm two guessing. connected, you know, it's the, the great hope is eventual union with Jesus in, a, in an embodied way, like real community, the thing that the apostles had with Jesus, that, that that's available to humans in, indefinitely, mm-hmm. eventually. Yeah, and I mean, I think Paul had a pretty beautiful and vital connection with Christ when he would, I mean, when Paul talks about living for Christ, dying is gain... Paul's experience is one one of deep intimacy with Jesus. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of his quote unquote certainty came out of that intimacy, that embodied experience where he's he's loving and walking with Jesus, who's transformed his life in such a radical way that for him it's just this is it. Here it is. And so I think Paul's connection to Jesus brings a lot of the stuff that we talk about and that we think about when we talk about the Apostle Paul and his doctrine and his theology and what he believed and what he did and all that stuff. Paul comes off very certain, mm-hmm. right? And I think many Christians get permission from from that to come off as very certain. But I think it's just a, a result of intimacy with Christ. Yeah. Okay, I have three questions for you. <laughs> three follow-ups here. This is interesting. None of this was on our outline, by the way, if anybody cares. Um, so... First question, would you say that the crucifixion and death of Jesus would have been equally meaningful and, um, let's say, theologically important if the resurrection had not happened? No. I mean, theologically important, you said, I think? Yeah. I mean, atonement, I think you're talking about atonement here, right? Mm Mm-hmm. I mean, atonement is a package deal. It's not like if you if you take the death, I believe, and I think this is kind of a scriptural atonement theology, if you take the death of Christ away, the atonement doesn't happen. If you take the resurrection away, 
atonement for sins happens when Jesus is sacrificed, but resurrection and new life happens because mm-hmm. Jesus preceded us in that resurrection and new life. So, yeah, I mean, I think the crucifixion without the resurrection is it is still the clearest picture we'll ever have of who God is and what God's like. Mm-hmm. Can we say that? There's all sorts of things you can say about the the significance of the crucifixion of Christ if you take away the resurrection, but the what what is done for us is absolutely not the same without the resurrection. Okay. Let me ask it a little bit differently. If the story was the same, but the concrete event of the resurrection had not happened, let's imagine that Bart Ehrman is correct, for example, and that, you know, Jesus's body was stolen or something. I don't know if that's what he actually Mm -hmm. thinks, but people like that, you know. So there's some alternative explanation for the empty tomb. But the story remains the same and is handed down through church history the same. Do you think that makes a significant difference? Difference in what? In, well, a couple of things. A theological difference first, but also a difference for you as a practitioner of the faith. So, we have this imaginary scenario where I've been believing in the resurrection the whole time and preaching about it, and all of a sudden somebody comes to me with direct evidence that the resurrection really didn't happen, was a hoax, Jesus is still dead. And so, you're asking if that happened to me, would that would change continue, anything? Would you, yeah, would, would that, what would that change for you, if anything? I can't answer that, uh, <laughs> honestly, but... Because let me, let me frame that, because I think that's the same question we're dealing with, right? Okay. If, uh, if there's no resurrection for us, and Christianity maintains its integrity, I don't know what the right word is, but like it maintains its worthwhileness mm-hmm. <laughs> as, as a system to be practiced and followed and adhered to, then couldn't we say the same thing about the resurrection of Jesus? I mean, we believe in our resurrection because of his, right? Mm -hmm, So, mm -hmm. I mean, what would change for me is the the astounding hopefulness I have about all of reality, about where all this is headed, about the restoration of humanity, of the restoration of the wrongs that's been done to millions and millions and millions of people who, you know, have suffered violence and oppression and injustice. That would change. It would actually change if there was no resurrection. What would not change, I don't think, would be me being committed to the way of Christ and inviting people into it to experience the life of the Trinity or the life of the way of Christ in the here and now. Because again, I mean, and I think this, this bears out in my preaching, I don't talk about the afterlife a ton. Right. I don't talk about, you know, follow Jesus because you're going to go to heaven when you die. I mm-hmm. talk about following Jesus because it's the best way. I talk about following Jesus because the way of Jesus fixes what's wrong about our world, I believe. Yeah. Am, I, am I answering? Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. It's funny to me that uh, the one of us who is totally fine with openly disagreeing with Paul ends up, I think, being more conservative on this, <laughs> this issue than the one who is a little hesitant about <laughs> disagreeing with him. You don't want to disagree with Paul? I'm fine with it. I, I don't. I, uh-huh. think, I, think that, I think that we actually agree and that he uh, thinks that resurrection is necessary like a concrete event in the future is necessary for the meaningfulness or worthiness of Christianity in general. But it's just funny to me that like you're more hesitant about disagreeing with them. And also you're the one I think reinterpreting. <laughs> to Probably. Me, to yeah, me. Yeah. I mean, Paul's a real person. Does, I mean, I know you guys think have had these thoughts, but I mean, I really want to know what's behind Paul, what, what's Paul, behind Paul's thinking when he writes about women or when he writes about sexuality, when he yeah. writes about, you know, the afterlife, when he writes about, what's important, what's not important, or kicking out the immoral brother, all, all that stuff. I, I want to know 
what was going on around Paul that made him say mm-hmm. that? And yeah, what, yeah. what were his biases? And what were what was he grumpy about? You know, and what yeah. what brought him life? I, I want to. That's the kind of thing that I think about when I yeah. in these conversations. No, I love it. I love your response. It wasn't at all what I expected. So that, that's that's one of the reasons. Five people we do just this. left my church. <laughs> More heresy after the break. <laughs> <laughs> Now, can I issue my complaint about the framing of this conversation? Sure. Going back to, I think your your initial structure was basically uh, religion can't be trusted to approach with any real rational evidence this issue of the afterlife. Mm-hmm. To which I would say, in my tradition, faith is a virtue. Yeah. And it seems to be one of those things where not seeing and believing is actually something to be upheld. Jesus kind of said it. So if you say, well, you don't have any rational evidence for that. And I say, I'm supposed to have faith. It feels like we're entering the conversation through different doors and neither of us is really going to care what the other person has to say at the end (laughs) of the day. Yeah. No, that's great. Yeah. So I'm, I was speaking there on behalf of uh, Mo. Well, I shouldn't even say, most, a lot of historical philosophers who have been very influential, right? Um, and I'm, I'm trying to explain by doing that why probably most philosophers nowadays, including many religious ones, interestingly, would reject an afterlife, at least in the classical sense. So most philosophers tend to be atheists, most philosophers tend to be physicalists in the sense that they believe the world is made of atoms indescribable by the laws of nature and there's no such thing as a soul or a spirit or any disembodied and you know immaterial existence to people it's all these philosophical reasons that uh, philosophers have to reject this and including the epistemic reasons we were just going through we just don't have sufficient evidence but there have been a lot of philosophers more recently since say the mid-20th century who want to make a place for faith Actually, it goes back a little further than that if you want to include Kierkegaard, who is one of the fathers of existentialism, although he's kind of an outlier in his own tradition, who, who want to make room for faith in the sense that it's not, it's not an irrational disposition. You don't have to sacrifice your intellect to be a person of faith, but it's also not motivated just by reason. It's something that happens after reason has kind of mm-hmm. run its course. Mm-hmm. Kind of what James was doing, because James wanted to make make space for religious faith, too. He just thought, you know, faith can kind of pick up where the evidence runs out. Mm-hmm. When the evidence points in a direction, I have a responsibility. But when it doesn't, and the question is still live and important and has concrete practical consequences, then faith picks up there. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's a, a pretty healthy way of thinking about faith. It's not the full story, of course, but I don't think of faith as being something contrary to reason. I think of it as uh, being something that goes beyond the balance of the reason in the sense that it involves action, right? It involves practice. It involves putting my trust in a being or a group of people or an institution maybe to behave in a certain way towards me beyond what I have good evidence to guarantee, right, will happen. Now, now I have some evidence, I believe, that uh, afterlife is possible. Right? I have these uh, stories from the New Testament. Mm-hmm. That's some evidence. Mm-hmm. And I don't think it's necessarily even defeated evidence, like mm-hmm. overcome by other better evidence. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that the people who testified to Jesus' resurrection were probably telling the truth. 
and that gives me some reason to believe it. But it also like really directly contradicts all of my other experience. So I also have some reasons to be suspicious of it a little bit. And so I think the evidence there is indecisive. Mm-hmm. It doesn't point firmly in one direction or another. So I think there's room for faith in that sense. I can trust that if God exists and loves me, then this is something he would want, my continued existence with him, you know, as me. And he wouldn't uh, allow this thing to happen where a whole tradition is based on a promise that ultimately wasn't a promise, mm-hmm. you know. But 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 I also admit that that's, that's something I'm choosing to believe. At the end of the day, I think that's what faith is. It's something you're choosing to believe, not on the basis of bad evidence, but uh, on the basis of trust in the character of a person. So, And, and there are a lot of philosophers who want to, who want to incorporate that into into their philosophical practice? Mm-hmm. That that's not the majority, mm-hmm. <laughs> but they're out there for yep. sure. So, yeah, I don't want to discount that. Does that help at all? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, here's why I'm perfectly okay with you know your treatise. The first thing that you said that philosophers don't think religious people should get to be the authority on the afterlife. I'm completely comfortable with it because it's probably true from an intellectual and reason perspective. From a logical perspective, my faith in the afterlife is not based on concrete evidence or logic or, you know, reason. The reason I believe in it is because of all the reasons that I still choose to give authority in my life to the Bible in some way, shape, or form. The, the reason is because I see the way of Jesus and it's just so strikingly the best way I've ever seen to to live mm-hmm. that it makes me trust the the other stuff more, you know, and it's, yeah. it's kind of like this thing that you build. And so it leads me to this place where I say, I can still listen to you and still listen to all these philosophers and say, that's great. And it makes sense, actually. But I still choose to believe in the afterlife. In afterlife, yeah. I still t- choose to believe in a resurrection. And it really is helpful for me. And here's where I think I mean, I think this fits within the scripture, the narrative of the scriptures. I mean, you have Matthew, I believe it's Matthew 28, where Matthew's putting a bow on his gospel (laughs) and Jesus is about to ascend into heaven. And Matthew says, hey, we all went up to this, you know, this top of this hill, hung out with Jesus, resurrected Jesus, right? We all saw him die. We know he he died. He was dead and all this stuff. We're, we're hanging out with Jesus now. And it still says, but some still doubted. Yeah. <laughs> That's one of the most hilarious verses in the Bible yeah. that I know of, that you're hanging out with the resurrected Jesus and some people are looking at it and be like, nah, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, didn't, I don't believe it. I'm yeah. seeing an aberration. Mm-hmm. Um, Matthew included that for one thing. That's incredible. Yeah. If we Even if we in- believe in the inspiration of the scriptures, God saw fit to include people's raw process of being face-to-face with the resurrected Jesus and still saying, I don't buy it, you know, but it just tells me this conversation has a place and we can actually work it out together. And I can still choose to believe in afterlife and resurrection in the face of a really brilliant philosopher. And I'm not talking about you. I'm just saying a (laughs) hypothetical one who doesn't believe in it because you believe like you choose to believe in the afterlife, I think more than not. And I could be looking in the face of a philosopher who thinks I'm foolish for it, yeah. but I can say, that's fine, but I still choose to believe it. Yeah, yeah. That, that's one of the things I love most, I think, about the, the New Testament. And it always gave me solace when I was struggling through what I thought about these things was that it includes stories like that. It includes Thomas, you know, it makes, mm-hmm. makes kind of a point, actually, out mm-hmm. of including Thomas and his doubts. And that becomes an important part of church tradition as well. And yeah, I always identified with that. I mm-hmm. get it. If I was there and saw it, I would still wonder. 
some Kierkegaard wrestles with too. If people that were contemporary with Christ had any leg up on anybody else and he thought they didn't because, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, cause there's only so much like direct perceptual evidence or any kind of objective evidence can do in relation to faith. It can get you so far, but it's just as likely to get in the way mm-hmm. because you're going to end up believing for the wrong reasons. If, if the point of the whole yeah. thing is to yeah. open yourself up in an ethical way, in a personal way, to this other being who has demands on you and how you should live, then the objective evidence for, you know, what's the concrete truth, what's really going to happen, blah, 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 that's just as likely to distract you from the point as it is mm-hmm. to get you there. That was Kierkegaard's whole thing. So, um, so yeah, I always loved the emphasis on, you know, it's okay to doubt. That doesn't, like, disqualify you from the point of this which is to have a relationship with this person and to behave in the way that this person told you to behave, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you Mm -hmm. know, uh, and demonstrated. Yeah. I think, I mean, I really, I agree with that. And I think, um, I think a lot of faith crises could potentially be a little bit smoother if we really just drilled down again to like why we believe, why, why are we, why am I on this faith journey and why do Mm -hmm. I say yes to Jesus? And there's, I think there's better answers than others, right? Yeah. I don't think all answers are equal. And I think the more we can drill down and say, but if this wasn't real, would you still follow Jesus? And if this wasn't real, yeah. would you still follow Jesus? If you can keep going down the line and just say, at the end of the day, I just, I like Jesus and what he, what he said or what this person wrote down that this pretend Jesus person said, it just works, it works and the world would be better for it if we followed it. If that's our baseline, then then we got a lot of freedom to have these conversations and to not feel so insecure. And I feel like many of us, we feel like we have to hold on to the certainty of afterlife or we have to ha- hold on to the certainty of the inspiration and fallibility and inerrancy of the scriptures. You can go mm-hmm. on down the line because we've been given this this really fragile faith that if one aspect of it crumbles, then the rest of it does too. And we can't trust it. Nothing can be trusted. If, you know, I can go on down the line. That's just not a really healthy way to construct a faith. And many of us were given it. It wasn't our choice. It's just, it was given to us. It was built for us. We were indoctrinated, let's be honest. And now it's our jobs to let go of some of that stuff and to really ask questions of why do I follow Jesus? Why am I following in this way? Why do I think in this way? These are these shouldn't be like well they are earth shattering questions, but we should make space for them, yeah. just like what happens when we die. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about misconceptions. So kind of take this a, a little more in the objective direction here. Lots of Christians believe lots of things about the afterlife, and many of them, as you said, are. There are better and worse ways to, to, to mm-hmm, picture this. And mm-hmm. There are better and worse ways to justify your views of this. So what are some big misconceptions that you think Christians have about what the afterlife is like or why we should think it's that way? Or maybe things that uh, a lot of people think are in the Bible but aren't, or, you know, think are in the Christian tradition or aren't. Can you think of anything like that? <laughs> yep. I mean, our our understanding of the afterlife, and by that I mean what heaven is like or what hell is like, those two things mm-hmm. were mostly constructed by non-biblical sources. So that's a problem, mm. right? Like the idea- What do you mean? What do you mean? Let's give a little detail there. <laughs> okay. So let's start with hell. This is, this yeah. is an easy one. Hell, the word hell 
I don't even know if it's actually in the Bible. There's all sorts of different words, Greek and Hebrew words for whether it's Gehenna or whether it's um, Tartarus or whether it's, there's a, there's a, many words that are used for this. What we have now is this idea of hell, yeah. but the, the concept that we have of hell, fire and brimstone, all the nastiness. It's either in the Bible, it's either a metaphor for a literal place in outside of Jerusalem called Gehenna, which was a place where they would have this fire that doesn't go out. It's the dump. It's the town dump outside of Jerusalem. And it's always used in this metaphorical way to say, this is what happens if you don't follow Jesus. You get kind of thrown into the, the dump that's good for nothing. Mm. That's metaphorical language. I mean, they're using a literal place. It'd be like if we named our town dump right over here, yeah. and then you call that, you use that name for hell, right? Yeah. But the ideas of fire and brimstone and are, are clear things that we think about when we think about of he- from hell came mostly from Dante, mm. um, came mostly from Dante's vision of hell and all of the angry wrath and judgment, all that stuff. Yeah. Um, so that's one. And you might be r- just wiggling in your car seat right now and really <laughs> angry at me. But just go through the scriptures, do some scriptural reflection. You'll find that all of our language about hell is metaphorical. Second thing, the idea of heaven has gotten super weird to, you know, where we have these mythological pictures of floating around in clouds and, you know, living in candy land and we get to pick <laughs> our own paradise or whatever. It's our choose your own adventure. Yeah. All of that is as well is not scriptural. Yeah. It's just not at all. The only thing that we get about, maybe one of the only things that we get about heaven is Jesus saying to the thief on the cross, today you'll be with me in paradise. Yeah, And then we get revelation, we get pictures of saints waiting for judgment to happen to be released. What's a better picture scripturally of heaven is kind of maybe a a waiting place, a place where you wait for the resurrection to happen. A place where perhaps you go paradise with Jesus, all that good stuff, but that's not the end of the story yet. The end of the story is resurrection. The end of the story is new creation. The end of yeah. the story is Revelation 20, 21, 20, all that stuff. Am I being clear? Yeah, yeah. This is something N.T. Wright writes about a lot, right? Yes, He's kind of famous yes. for this. It's his stuff. I'm borrowing it. Yeah, yeah. The, the idea that uh, the kingdom of heaven is something that Jesus inaugurated and you know started when he was here, and then yes. it was always intended to be a physical thing, an embodied thing, a thing on this planet. <laughs> it's <laughs> not, now and not, not yet. Not a yeah. thing that we go somewhere else for, right? And that makes a big difference, right? Because if you think of heaven or hell, either one, as something somewhere else, then you you know lessens your responsibility that you have towards this place mm-hmm. and uh, what we do to it. So this has ecological consequences. Totally. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Absolutely. I mean. A prominent pastor said, you know, a few years ago said, who cares if I drive a humongous SUV and burn up the ozone layer because yeah. this is all burning up in, in, in the end anyways. Yeah. That's what happens when you have bad scriptural reflection. Yeah. Maybe sometime we'll talk about where they where they get that. Yeah, sure. Why they read the Bible that way. So that's just an example of bad ideas within Christendom about yeah. afterlife that's really not scriptural. Yeah. On that, on that idea that... Um, there's like this disembodied state when we die, right? Where, yeah, maybe there's a resurrection out there in the future somewhere, but I feel like a lot of Christians, maybe even most, when they think about an afterlife, they're thinking of something like a ghost, <laughs> right? So, some kind of existence where I have my consciousness and I have my memories and I have my thoughts, but my body is changed or different or maybe non-existent. Um, and, and realizing that that's not in the Bible mm-hmm. and that it, that it wasn't even a very prominent idea in church history, right? I mean, there were debates about this sort of thing through the Middle Ages and 
Uh, Aquinas, for example, who was an Aristotelian, thought that, look, we're embodied creatures, and so we need a body to exist. And uh, so when the body decays, that's the end of our existence. Mm -hmm. And so if there's going to be something in the interim, it's going to be a a miracle of God that we can't, in principle, understand, right? Um, not, Not saying he couldn't do that, couldn't preserve that, but like the future hope of the church the thing that's enshrined in the creed has always been a re-embodied existence, mm-hmm. something mm-hmm. physical, yeah. something on this planet in this, in this world. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I find my, my students who are religious have no, no concept of that. Hmm. Hmm. They think of themselves as disembodied spirits, which is interesting. Sure. And I will say another, I think extra biblical concept that most, most Protestant American Christians hold is the idea of eternal conscious torment. Yeah. When you see it in the Bible, and everyone who's trying to defend that in their heads right now, as I say that, is thinking about you know the scripture saying where you know where the worm never dies, and you know blah blah blah. That's metaphorical language, friends. Mm. It's one hundred percent metaphorical language, and you don't find it all over the scriptures. It's rare. I think eternal conscious torment is a unbiblical, and b now if you believe in eternal conscious torment and it seems to be important to you right now. That's okay. I love you. We can be friends. We can talk. But I do think it's a terrible doctrine that paints God into being a monster. And I'm not interested in a God who wants to yeah. torture people for eternity. Yeah. I'm, I'm of the opinion that the problem of evil is hard enough. Let's not have doctrines that make it worse. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I think, I think John, the Apostle John, is with me on that. And I think all of it is. Yeah. But yeah. again, that's something that we need to wrestle with and we need to, we need to reckon with and hold that maybe these things that we see is so essential to the faith. When you actually ask, where do you find that in the Bible? And when you actually consider how it's said and what, what genre it's written in and all that stuff, yeah. then all of a sudden it gets a little bit less concrete and we can have these conversations and sure. hold these spaces. Yeah. I will say that, uh, kind of returning to what we were talking about before, that afterlife and resurrection feel essential to me whether mm. whether there's like a good historical case to be made or biblical mm-hmm. case or or even philosophical case like they feel essential hmm. so what do you mean like, like they're a huge part of my motivation to be a christian they're there's something that i would be i don't know the idea that they're not true and that christianity ultimately is a kind of ethic Mm-hmm. A really mm-hmm. good one, maybe mm-hmm. the best mm-hmm. one. Mm-hmm. That is deeply disturbing to me, and it, it, it makes me it makes me think, it makes me feel like I should say that I've wasted a huge chunk of my life, hmm. um, and that I'm probably going to waste a lot more of it. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so I, I'm wondering, how do you? How does it strike you, just psychologically, emotionally, when you think that when you acknowledge, as you have done, that believing in an afterlife, believing in a resurrection, believing that you'll be, you know, reunited with loved ones, that you'll see Jesus face to face, all the things, that that's a choice. Mm-hmm. It, what does that do psychologically for you? Because it's super hard for me, i got to be honest. Hmm. Something I do, it's something that I find inevitable, actually, right? Because I'm of the opinion that you can't make yourself believe things that you don't believe there's evidence for. So if I believe, as I do, that the evidence is inconclusive, then I can't make myself believe that it's not. And mm-hmm. so I, I simply don't have the confidence I used to possess. So I find myself saying things like, you know, if somebody asks me if I believe in a resurrection or whatever, I'll flippantly say something like, well, it depends on the day of the week, which is a, 
you know, an offhanded way of wriggling out of the question because it's really difficult. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, first of all, this is getting to be quite depressing. <laughs> so <laughs> thanks for hanging with us, friends. Um, yeah, it would be deeply d- disappointing. I mean, profoundly disappointing if resurrection wasn't a real thing. Jesus isn't alive. And, and But I can't speak to what that would do to me because of a loss of a loved one, because I haven't lost someone who mm. means that much to me. I mean, I have no yeah. surviving grandparents, all this stuff, but I haven't lost a parent and I haven't lost a spouse and I haven't lost my kids. Yeah. So come back to me, you know, hopefully a long, long time from now when, yeah. when those things happen and I could answer that honestly, because I can't right now. But I would say the thing that I really hold to with the resurrection, that why I want the resurrection to be real so desperately is because, again, of the way it helps me to interact with the world around me and the brokenness that I see. It's the only thing that gives me hope. Yeah. It's not the only thing, but it's, a, it's the biggest thing that gives me hope. And it's the biggest thing that makes me think that little girl who was tortured and, you know, all she knew her four years of life was awful torture, and then she died. The only reason that I have hope in the 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 reason that I think that can be a story can be redeemed is because of the resurrection because that those wrongs will be righted and that to me is the idea of judgment in the book of revelation where God sets all the wrongs to right and brings that vengeance of the holy one that stuff to me would be profoundly disappointing if the resurrection isn't a real thing because yeah. then redemption only happens in this life and it just doesn't happen enough does that make sense yeah but i do believe in the resurrection and I believe in it right now really strongly. And I see hints of the resurrection. I see signposts, as N.T. Wright would say, of the resurrection on a regular basis. And I think, I think you could say objectively even, the world is getting better over the course of human history, particularly in the last 2,000 years. And we could do that on a statistical data-based mm. methodology and say, actually, the world is getting better. And I think resurrection and new creation, the reason for that is Jesus is alive. And this is all heading somewhere good that all things are being made new by the Holy One of Israel. Yeah. So we like to end our podcast these days with some version of the question, what's a better way? So I think the, the version of that that's relevant here is, how should Christians be thinking and talking about afterlife? that is distinct from the way they have been (laughs) because we both grew up in traditions where there was certainty about these things and there was heaven and it was going to be like this and there was hell and it was going to be like that. And we knew specifically who was going to go there and who wasn't, you know, and it's, we're all very sure of it. And then stuff that we have to deconstruct later. And that kind of, you know, drives you into despair when you realize probably at a funeral that gosh, I'm saying these things, but I'm not sure. So what do you think is a better way to talk about these things in our churches? I mean, I wouldn't be having this conversation if I didn't think it was a healthy conversation to have and a healthy thing to consider. I wouldn't, like, I would ask us to not air this episode. So I Mm. think this kind of conversation is a healthy one. A chorus on this podcast, a couple of choruses. One is epistemic humility. Yeah. And I think we do well to just deal with with less certainty and to reckon with the fact that the reason that we believe in the afterlife is because we believe in the afterlife. We don't know. Can't know. And... This idea of certainty, we would do well to, to just wash it from our consciousness, from our belief system, from our faith journey, all that stuff. And I still think that 
you know, holding something humbly with less certainty, but with still, I can, I think I can in this moment say the same amount of faith. I, I believe in the resurrection the same amount as when we started this conversation as I do now, because I know that that's a choice and that's a, that's, that's a thing that I put faith in. And there's more reasons than that, but that's really it. And I think those are healthy conversations to have. I want to give my kids, I've said this a couple of times, but I, I'll say it again. Me and my wife are trying to give our kids a spirituality that doesn't have to be deconstructed when they turn 22 or yeah. 18. And I think these kind of conversations and saying, when my kids ask, what happens to grandma when she dies? Saying, well, we don't know, but here's what we think. And here's what the Bible says. Here's what you know we believe. That's a better way to frame it than saying with certainty, Here's what happens when grandma dies. Yeah. Here's what happens when dad dies. Yeah. I, I guess I'm just trying to imagine, like, what would I have wanted my pastor to have said instead of what he did say when mm. I was, you know, What did your pastor say? Or whatever. Well, I had a slew of different pastors. One of them, I think, my earliest was would have been honest, but I was already out of his church by the time I was asking these questions. So I had Southern Baptist pastors and Pentecostal pastors who presented false confidence because I'm about to have a kid Mm -hmm. and he's going to ask me about these things someday, presumably and probably early if he takes after me Mm -hmm. and I'd like to have a response that doesn't crush him. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Kyle's getting emotional. (laughs) It's amazing what parenting will do to you. One of those times I wish Kyle was parenting ahead of us instead of behind (laughs) us. (laughs) Yeah. yeah, I do want to say this has been probably our darkest episode, our most decentering episode, and that's okay. I think there's a place for decentering and for being a little bit jolted by what we maybe have taken for granted. But I do also want to say that believing, choosing to have faith in the afterlife, in resurrection, is a good thing. It's not that it's a bad thing if you don't believe in it, but it's actually not a dumb choice to believe that Jesus is bringing all things towards resurrection and new creation. After all is said and done with this conversation, I choose to believe that all of this is headed towards resurrection. I choose to believe that there is something on the other side of death, and that is beauty, that is Christ, and that is resurrection and new creation. I choose to believe that. Yeah, and I would just add that you you can be completely intellectually virtuous and hold a belief like that. I don't think you're committing any kind of sins of thinking, you know, mm-hmm. there aren't any philosophical sins that you're committing. I think I, I would disagree with those who argue that there are uh, because the evidence is indecisive and uh, there's a lot of good that comes from a belief like that on the one hand. But also, if you're just a theist, just re- make it really basic. If you think there is a God, if you're not a Christian... What do you think that God would be like? Do you think that God is fundamentally good or not? Mm-hmm. And if you think he is, she is, they are, then would that God allow things to go off the rails as badly as they have and then just end? And my conviction is that no. And and the best evidence I can give for that is that I wouldn't. Hmm. Hmm. <laughs> and I'm not very good, you yeah. know? <laughs> I, I, you know, I think about what I'm going to tell my kid about this someday, I think if I had any power at all over how things are going to go for him, I would make it such that the suffering he endures was for something, yeah. was for a purpose. And I'm a flawed human who is selfish and, you know, 
likes my own interests better than the interests of others. And if any kind of God exists, he's got to be better than that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so uh, I, I think in, in some ways to be committed to theism, any theistic religion is to be committed to the existence of some kind of afterlife or to admit that the problem of evil is just unsolvable. Not just unsolvable, but but decisive, which means you shouldn't be a theist. So, uh, to, to, to deny the existence of the afterlife is to me to give up on the project of theism hmm. in general. Hmm. Maybe we can have a separate episode about that, but yeah. I mean, I mean, I intend that to be encouraging. <laughs> We're gonna it say, is. Yeah, yeah, it is. Hopefully that's clear. <laughs> Thanks for listening to A Pastor and a Philosopher Walk Into a Bar. We hope you enjoyed the episode. And if you did, please rate and review the podcast before you close your app. You can also share the episode with friends or family members with the links from our social media pages. Gain inside access, extra perks, and more at patreon.com slash a pastor and a philosopher. We're so grateful for your support of the podcast. Until next time, this has been A Pastor and a Philosopher Walk Into a Bar. I, I regret that in my, like, I still believe in the resurrection, I call Jesus the Holy One of Israel. I want to take back on that one. <laughs> I don't like that. <laughs> I don't think I even caught that. <laughs> As I said it, I was like, oh, God. Do you want to just say El Shaddai and the mic and then I can replace it? <laughs> like, I actually want to say, like, did I really just say Holy One of Israel? <laughs> That's like the Nick Oshman in the back of my head. He's like, oh, God. <laughs>